it'd been a fun few years at Momofuku, but it was also, it was hard and intense. And, you know, after speaking to Frank and Justin, it just felt like a time for a change, really, you know, a new challenge. You know, you, you go from a 40 seat restaurant in a casino to running a 300 seat pub on Oxford Street. It's a, it's a, it's a big, big difference. <laughs> This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Change is one of the hardest things to accept and implement. We're always talking about change, the need for it, the impact of it, the desire for something better. But what impact does real change have? When you look at the way you live your life and turn it on its head, Ben Greeno is the executive chef of the Centennial and the Paddington Precinct. Ben, how are you going? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm good, mate. It's great to have you on. You've been um, so influential since you've been here in Australia, but I first just wanted to talk about some decisions you made at the beginning of the year, um, personal decisions. And can you tell us about that time and and, and about that? Yeah, um, at the start of the year, I just decided that I'd stop drinking for a while, um, stop eating meat and fish, just to see what effect it had on me. And uh, yeah, now it's been, well, three and a half months, and it's been pretty good, I think. Tell us about that decision to make that dramatic change. You said to see what impact it would have on you. Why did you make that decision to cut all of that out of your life? Just to see, like you read so many things and you watch so many documentaries about, oh, you know, go vegan and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought, I'll give it a go because I like a challenge. And I thought, I'll see um, what it'll do for me. And it, it's been great. Um, I definitely feel a lot lighter, which is it's a kind of a strange feeling. You don't feel like this the meat is weighing you down. The drinking thing wasn't that much of an issue for me because I didn't really drink too much anyway. And I did a good stint a few years ago of, of no drinking. So it was, that's been pretty easy. What's it been like for you? Um, you know, you've got a very busy role in the Maryvale group with, with two venues. Has it, has it changed the way you perceive your job and the way that you, uh, run those kitchens it has changed the way i look at what i offer for vegetarians and i won't and you know i won't accept somebody saying if i say what are we going to do for the vegetarian they say oh the pasta i'm like no we're not we're not doing the pasta or the risotto that's just not happening anymore so there's a lot more time and effort and thought going into the vegetarian offering I want to dive deeper into that, the world of vegan and vegetarian food shortly. But you came to Australia uh, at the beginning of Momofuku Siobo and its opening and you were the head chef. Take us back to that time and, and how you got that role and, um, and coming to Australia to do that. What was it like? Yes, yeah, so it's 10 years ago this year that I moved down, down here. Wow. Yes, it's, it's going, it's going, it seems like it's gone pretty fast. Uh, at the time, I was living in London with my then girlfriend, now wife, kind of looking for a, a restaurant space over there, talking to various people about opening something. And then Chang was over doing um, a food festival down in Borough Market. And I'd met him a couple of years before out at Noma. And we and kept in touch. And then we were just, uh, he said, 
can you do a dish with me on stage? You know, it'd be really good so people will see you, blah, blah, blah. And then, so we got, we were backstage prepping these dishes, got talking. At the time, he had an Australian girlfriend. And I, you know, obviously, Cara's Australian, my wife. And we, we were just chatting, and he's like, oh, we're going to open a restaurant in Sydney. He said to me, do you want to be the chef there? And I said, mm, not really. No, I had <laughs> no, <laughs> no interest in going to Australia. <laughs> um, and then I spoke to my old boss, Sat, and he was like, you should take it. You're, you're, you're mad if you don't take it. Uh, so I, I emailed Dave, said I'm in, and then, yeah, that was it. Um, three months later, I think three, four months later, um, you know, we finally started working on this thing. Then it was go to New York and worked in New York and then came down here like July 2011. You were a bit of a you were a bit of a mystery when you came to Australia to to most of us and uh, and you're not one to seek the limelight. You weren't sort of very eager to be in the press. What what was that period of time like when there was so much focus on what was what was going to happen with the restaurant? Um, take us back to that time, that early stages in the lead up. Well, the early stages were they were all right actually because there was no real expectation. Nobody knew what we were going to do, so we were just carrying on doing what we do. You know, I had lunch with um, John Fink and Peter Gilmore one day at Fink's house. And he's just probing me going, you know, what are you going to do? It seems like you're going to open Co. Somebody said it's only 40 seats. It's going to be a Co. It's going to be a Co. I was like, mate, it's a casino. If it's 40 seats, we can fill it four or five times. And I just wouldn't let anything on. So it was really good. I mean, um, yeah, it was great. Dad, having drinks with Darren Robertson on one of my first nights out here. And he's just like, oh, you're not like I was expecting. And I was like, well, what did you expect me to walk in with like a cloak going, ta-da, here I am. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, just opening a restaurant. It's not a, it's nothing life-changing really. Well, the the restaurant had a, a monumental impact. And, and as you know, it'll close later this year. And you were one of the main reasons behind its success. Tell us about, your role in the kitchen and the sort of food you were doing there and the momentum that it got? Oh, yeah, the, the momentum came quite quickly. Um, we were just doing what we wanted to do. It wasn't pigeonholed into anything. There was a little mix of all sorts of stuff, um, not in like a terrible fusion way, but it was just dishes that we wanted to eat. Um, between me and the two brilliant sous chefs Clayton and Chase we came up with pretty much everything um Serpico was there at the start and yeah it was fun times right at the beginning there it was great you briefly mentioned uh, a very influential British chef that you worked for Sat Baines and take us back to the early days and and how influential influential he's been on your career oh massively massively like every decision I make um, professionally and, and per, a lot of personal decisions gets run through sat. Like I check everything with him. Um, I started working for him when I was 20 and did a couple of stints on and off. He's every move that I made for the first five, six years. He, he put me in that position to make the move. Like he organized the move to Noma with Rene he, when I came back to him, he then organized for me to go to France. Then I came back and then was back to Denmark again. And 
yeah, he's been a massive part of my life. You mentioned that uh, you started with him at 20. What what led to a career in the industry for you? Um, Really simple. I didn't have any interest in like woodwork or computers or metalwork, which is, you know, all the kind of stuff that we had to pick during our options at school. So I was kind of left with cooking and started cooking, then got the part-time job um, at a hotel after work experience there. And yeah, just loved it. Loved it. You mentioned the influence that Sat has had. Take us back to those early days. What was it like in the in the kitchens and do you have any interesting stories to tell from those times i can't tell too many stories Um, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah you know when when i started there there was three of us there was me sat and a guy called marcus pepper and i was on the garnish section and you know i remember walking in on a morning and the garnish section is it was huge like the prep list was huge and then i'd look at those two guys section and they'd have like five or six things on it and mine would take up a whole side of a4 i just it was just in the shit from the moment i walked in um it's great like you know sometimes we do you know 30 covers just two of us you know at this level that was at the time like pushing for a star and it was it was nuts i loved it your time at Noma was when it really hit the hit its straps and got recognition all over the globe. What was it like working in that kitchen? So there, there was two stints at Noma. So there was the the very first time I was there was right from opening. So from opening day and did six months and then left and came back a few years later, around two thousand seven, two thousand eight, something like that. Um, and that was pretty incredible. That was like relentless, just, you know, everything had to be the absolute best. There was no shortcuts. It was, yeah, it was, it was really intense. And there was, there was days walking in there where you're like, I just can't do another day. But if it is funny, because then at the end of the week, you're like, Fuck, like, how good is that? You know, just, and seeing all those people coming through that restaurant, loving it and, all these chefs from all over the world flying in to eat there at this restaurant in Copenhagen was just amazing. He's uh, got a, an amazing ability to sort of uh, feature incredible ingredients that many of us may not have seen before. Were there some ingredients during your time there that you'd never used before and um, that you can tell us about that were highlighted on the menu? Oh, yeah. I mean, at that time, you know, I'd seen like Scottish langoustines and I'd seen a lot of this kind of stuff, but then you'd get these boxes of langoustines flying in from, you know, Iceland or the Faroe Islands late at night. And just, just the quality of them was incredible. Um, Muskox coming from Greenland on big pallets. Just amazing. Then there's just that whole world of, you know, herbs and forage stuff that you'd never even really thought about. I'd, I'd never thought about it. Um, and I know at Sats at the time, we'd never even contemplate it. You know, then it was like ringing up, getting a packet of chives and a packet of chervil. And then slowly over at Noma, you just see them. They're not ringing up, buying herbs. They're going out and getting them from the, from the forests. Yeah, so all that kind of stuff was pretty cool. You've experienced Noma from some pretty incredible positions from inception to 
to what it sort of became. Did you see the potential of Noma when you were there for the opening during your first stint? No, no. And then I, I think you, if you if you go back and look at, you know, some interviews over the past few years, I don't think anybody did. You know, they, they knew that there was something there, but to the level that it is now, no, no way. Um, it's a completely different restaurant. And, a, and even now it's completely different to when I, the last time I was there. It's, yeah, next level. As you say, you've been in Australia for a decade now. When, when you first arrived, did it, did it surprise you, the restaurant landscape? And, and how have you felt it evolve yourself? Uh, I think it felt a little bit kind of stiff when we first came over. It felt like, you know, everything was so prim and proper. There was Nobody was really relaxed in a restaurant. Um, but now it's, you know, it's, it's a lot lighter, a lot, a lot freer. Um, more people just seem to be doing whatever they want and having more fun in restaurants these days. You ended up leaving, uh, Momofuku to join, uh, Maryvale group to do, uh, the projects that you're doing now. Uh, t- tell us about that period of time and the decision to leave. Was it a difficult one? Um, oh, it wasn't. It wasn't difficult. You know, it'd been a fun few years at Momofuku, um, but it was also, it was hard and intense. And, you know, after speaking to Frank and Justin, it just felt like a time for a change, really. You know, a new challenge. You know, you you go from a 40-seat restaurant in a casino to running a 300-seat pub on Oxford Street. It's a, it's a, it's a big, big difference. <laughs> Tell us about those early days. What was the challenges involved when you uh, opened up the Paddington? It was a, it was a pretty um, influential gastro pub as, as soon as it opened, and as you mentioned, three hundred seater. It's huge. Um, tell tell us about that. The challenges that you had early on. Oh, just just not prepared for how busy it was. It was it was crazy. I've never seen anything like it. the the first <clears throat> The first week was absolutely nuts like the f- the first day we opened i think around four thirty five o'clock but by six every single seat was taken and people were standing everywhere and you i've never i haven't seen anything like it since because i think we went we went so hard with the with the media and the pr and everything that everybody came it was unbelievable yeah, it was a challenge. It was a challenge. You know, we we'd roast. We I think at the time we had you know maybe eighteen chefs, and I remember Frank coming to me about eight thirty on the night, on the first night. He's like, "Mate, you need more chefs." I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. But tell us about your concept with the food there, because you you brought you know the the humble roast chook sort of and put it under the spotlight. What was the challenges involved on that scale of, of doing that? Ah, uh, well, I, you know, I, I love the, the rotisseries that you get, you get them all over the streets in France. And it was a big reminder of, you know, holidays from when I was younger. And then that, the, actually putting them into a restaurant, the challenge is, it's just crazy. Like it's hard. Cause you, you know, you want that perfect combination of, oh, I want the skin to be this color 
brown and I don't want it to be overcooked. And, you know, when, when you have them in France, they're all knackered. Like they're, ne they're, ne they're never good. So the biggest challenge was getting the chicken just right. And it was, it was hard. It was hard. You ended up putting a takeaway window in as well and selling like lots of, lots of chooks. What, what sort of volume are we talking about? What sort of influence did it have on the area? Yeah, well, the influence it had on the area has been pretty good. You know, uh, then a, a year later or so, Fred's opened and Josh opened at the same time. And you can really feel a big change in Oxford Street like these days compared to when we first opened Paddington. In term, terms of numbers, you know, we, we saw, you know, well over 500 chickens a week between our venues. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Well, you're also looking after the Centennial at the moment. Uh, tell, tell us about the food offering there. It's a very different style pub to the Paddington um, and the real heartbeat of that sort of community. Um, do, you, do you treat that differently, that, that, that venue? Yeah, it's completely different to Paddington. Paddington, Paddington is, is, is a pub. Centennial is a pub that is a restaurant. It's, it's, it's a restaurant. If you look at Centennial, really, um, yeah, the, f the food is uh, more based on the south of France. That's where we look to for our inspiration here. Uh, we use just different produce, like, for example, the summer light chickens. We, we get more and more of our produce from Grant at Feather and Bone. Uh, so we, we have the summer lads on the menu here, which I don't think many people are using. Um, all our pork comes from Grant as well. When he when he gets himself together and sorts his veal supply out, we'll definitely be getting the veal off it. <laughs> <laughs> but then we, you know, we do other things. You know, like the the we're going to start using the two GR from Haverix, and we're going to do a whole braised uh, wagyu shin, which is going to be a pre-order thing for the winter months. Yeah, it's going to be pretty cool, but it, it's it's very different. The price point is different. Um, and you know, we, uh, we share, we share guests with other venues at like that similar price point. Like, so you, you see the same guests that come to Centennial that go to Fred's that go to, you know, wherever, but whereas the Paddington guests don't cross over so much with Centennial. As you mentioned, that whole area has been rejuvenated with, um, St. Peter, Fred's Paddington, um, Centennial, which is just up the road a little bit, it's it's changed dramatically. What, what's your role these days? You know, from the sort of forty seater at Momofuku to um, you know what you're doing now. What, can you give us some comparisons? How many chefs are you looking after, and, and what's the average day for you? Uh, so I look. Well, I look after. So my job is exec chef and operations for for all those venues. So I look after probably. 170 staff, 180 staff within just my venues. And then obviously there's a bigger role that gets played as an exec chef role when we sit in our group of exec chefs with Jordan and Dan and Nathan and all those guys. Um, it's a big influential role. My job is to make sure that we're doing everything that we can do to get the best for the guest, really. Um, an average day... It varies. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I generally have a lot of meetings. Fridays and Saturdays, I split my time between my between Paddington or Centennial. 
and spend the whole day in the kitchen on those two days and then in and out on the other days. The last year has been challenging for many in the industry with your role over the two huge venues and so many staff to look after. What, what sort of impact did it have on your operations? Um, well, it had a massive impact on the operations, but, you know, we tried to look after the team as well as we could. Uh, we, we started back straight away doing those Merivale at home boxes. I was making thousands of chocolate mousse a week, which was, I mean, back, backbreaking, but also so much fun. Like you, you know, you look around the room and there's all the exec chefs from Merivale in there, like pack it, packing up these plastic boxes of foods to be packaged to send to people's houses. It was pretty cool. And then, you know, when we could reopen for 10 people, we brought all our team back at um, Paddington and Fred's straight away to, to open the Paddington for 10 people plus for takeaway. And then we opened on the, we reopened for normal guests on one by four um, in July as soon as we could open. So everybody got a couple of months off and for some people it was, it was really hard, but you know, they're all back now and everybody came back really refreshed and ready to go. As someone that wasn't initially interested in coming to Australia, what's what's impressed you about Australian produce and working with it? Um, you know, the, the fish and the shellfish really impressed me. I love um, I love the passion that people have for mud crabs and lobsters. <laughs> it's very funny. I, you know, that that's what I kind of like. I really love it. Uh, for that kind of stuff. The beef is amazing down here. Yeah. Vegetables, they're getting better. You know, I've definitely said in the past that they're not great, but they're getting, they're getting better for sure. But I remember first getting here and just being like, oh my God, what is this? You know, carrots. Still to this day, you will go to the coals and get carrots that have no flavor whatsoever. But, you know, if you know where to go, you can get some good carrots, that kind of thing. Um, Georgie from Sif Produce does amazing work with her um, produce, the what she sources. Apples and broccoli, like amazing. At the top of the show, we talked about change and you've implemented some serious change in your life with um, no drinking and not eating fish or meat. Is this a long-term thing or, or is this something that you sort of want to dive into and out for your, for your life? I haven't decided yet. Um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I was talking to my wife yesterday thinking, oh, maybe I will have a drink on my birthday, you know, just at the end of April. But then, you know, I woke up today and I'm like, actually, you know what? That's just crazy. I don't need to do that. Um, so I, I really don't know yet. We'll see. But I'm definitely going to give it another couple of months like this, I think. The, the changes that you've had have been replicated on the menus of the two venues that you do. Can you give us an idea of the sort of um, vegetarian and vegan offerings that you now have because of this life sort of change? Oh, so right now at Centennial, I have a, have a pumpkin in the oven downstairs now, um, which has got uh, red rice from the south of France in it with a, and then it's a layer of, um, like a set duck cell, then a layer of black truffle, then more rice. So that's a dish that I'm working on now for Centennial, which, you know, if we can get it right, we'll just cut a big wedge out of it with that stuffing still on the side of it. Um, I've got a few things that I'm working on now for Paddington. You know, we have the, 
like a made a uh, a tofu out of chickpeas, so it's basically like a panisse that we're gonna get on the menu as like a fried chickpea tofu burger kind of thing. Um, Paddington's going to be an interesting one because we're actually going to go much heavier on the vegetables there and a few little mixes of things and vegetables are going to kind of move to the center of the menu down there which will be really interesting you know obviously we're still going to keep the chicken and the lamb and all that kind of stuff but really focus on the vegetables in Paddington see what see what that does what what sparked this this change? I know the change is within you, but for a venue that that's big, and you know people don't think of vegetables when they go to a pub. Do you think there's a change in our perspective of the importance of of eating lighter and eating vegetables? Is that driving it? I think so. That's that's what I'm thinking. You know, I think Frank was away somewhere the other day, and he went out for lunch with about eight friends, and he said that ninety percent of the table was vegetables. Um, it's definitely changed the way people eat now. Um, so, you know, if I can make that a, a forefront down at Paddington, let's let's see how it goes. You've seen the challenges to change those on menus. What's it been like for the last three months eating at home and being creative with dishes and vegetables again? Has it, has it opened up uh, avenues for you or has it been challenging? Oh, it's been all right for me. Uh, my kids and wife are not that thrilled about it you know my <laughs> my kids hate zucchini and eggplant like they hate it and every so often it's like oh zucchini and eggplant brilliant i'm eating so much zucchini and eggplant they're like no i can't eat anymore um and you know my 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 wife is kind of kind of half got on board with it but occasionally she's just like i just want a steak so i'll be cooking off you know a couple of steaks for for those guys and then yeah so the, it's Big piles and plates of vegetables with these tiny little bits of steak on the side. Pretty good. For someone who wasn't really keen on coming to Australia, do you see yourself staying here now with your family and and just further cementing yourself in the culinary landscape? Um, yeah, look, it's been it's been ten years now. There's, you know, I, I look at Europe now, and I'm glad I'm here, but. I can see that when it springs back over there, it's going to be amazing. Like, you know, so ne never rule out going back. I don't think Cara's that thrilled about the idea. But, you know, I, I never say never. But there, there are times when I miss it. I miss, um, I miss the pub, like in the countryside with the cricket pitch and the, you know, the picnic benches and that kind of thing. And, so, you know, never, never say never. Your influence has been huge here, but you've, um, you've really not been in the media that much compared to a lot of the professionals in the industry. Uh, what is it that you love about the food industry and being a chef? What, what's, what gives you drive every day for that? Oh, just happy people, like happy people who've got through a tough service, but looking out at a restaurant and seeing everybody enjoying themselves and the wine flowing and the beers coming through and you know that that table is just getting another round of cocktails like i love that i love the noise of a restaurant um the media and all that kind of stuff it doesn't really interest me I'm, i made myself a deal when i when i left momofuku that i wasn't gonna let 
these things like dictate my life and and I've stuck to it pretty well like you know it's not what drives me what drives me is making successful businesses and making people happy whether that's the team that are coming on and moving on to the next job for them you know within our business you know like junior sous chefs moving to Mimi's as a sous chef like things like that make me really happy um yeah and just you know helping people and yeah well ben uh, we're very fortunate to have you on deep in the weeds today and even more fortunate to have you and your influence in australia and i hope it does continue even though you do miss the old dart um, <laughs> um we've loved having you on deep in the weeds today mate um please keep in touch and good luck with um the vegetarian vegan no alcohol sort of life and how that might unfold and yeah. um, look forward to hearing more about that in the future great all right thanks for having me awesome mate really enjoyed it thank you this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPA community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.